So here we are at Nahum chapter 2, verse 1. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal. On the day he musters them, the cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all the precious things. Desolate, desolation, and ruin. Hearts melt, knees tremble, anguish is in all lions. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions? Where is the lion and the lioness went where his cubs were with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Father, as we consider this heavy passage this morning, we pray that you would give us comfort. As the name of this book is entitled Nahum, a name that means comfort, and I pray that you would comfort your people. The very intention, I think, and the heart of this book is to do that. And I pray amongst the heavy language that you would do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, church, in the year 1856, the State of the Union address given by President Franklin Pierce went out. Now, probably a lesser known president, Franklin Pierce, but he has an interesting uh pithy way of of stating the state of the union. He says it this way. It is necessary only to say that the internal prosperity of the country, its continuous and steady advancement in wealth and population, and in private as well as public being, attests to the wisdom of our institutions and the predominant spirit of intelligence and patriotism, which has distinguished and characterized the people of America. Most simply put, President Pierce, he's saying, it's all good. We're doing really well. The year 1856. Now, the timing, or the 1856, the timing is important because you know by 1858, if you go and read some of the state of the, of the Union addresses there, trouble is brewing. And by 1861, we are at war with ourselves. And by 1865, 620,000 of our own men lie dead in the grave. Everybody, everyone knew somebody personally who died in the war. The landscape was forever changed. 
And the quick lesson is for us that a nation's prosperity and their well-being is a poor indicator of where they will be in just a few years' time or even a decade's time later. Further, a nation's prosperity is a poor indicator of what the Lord thinks of that nation. This is a good thing to keep in mind for us, for you and I, to remain humble, knowing even as our nation, I think in some sense, may have already peaked. The roller coaster was going chink, 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 up higher and higher. How high can we go? And eventually what goes up must come down. And we've gotten glimpses of that. 2020, 2021, and a lot of the chaos that's come. We, we may be on the, on, on the downturn. And, and the question is, Does this historical lesson, this perspective, come to mind as we turn on the news? As we subsequently, after listening to the news or going through our social media feeds, as you begin to talk with your family members or your friends in regards to what you hear, will we begin to think about what what is it that that we say? How do we process? How do we think through these things? Will we consider the state of affairs, not just nationally, but globally? When we see one nation attacking another sovereign nation, when we know of uh, insurgents creating chaos and destroying the lives of those around them as Christians, how do we view these global powers? The nations with their corrupt leaders who tromp on their own people or their neighboring nations, and sometimes sadly both their own people and the surrounding nations? How do we view terrorist groups such as the Taliban or ISIS or recently in the news, Hamas? Do you ever find yourself in a place of despair? Do you find yourself kind of thinking they're just a juggernaut? Why try to care? I sort of give up, maybe pray a quick flare prayer and move on. Or do you grit your teeth, clench your fist and say, let's get them. Let's go gun them down. Is there a Christian way of thinking through these things? I think Nahum has something for us here this morning. As we look through chapters 2 and 3, I'd like to structure our time in this way. By first looking at three illustrations of Nineveh, and then look at two declarations from the Lord, and then we'll conclude by looking at one big takeaway from it all. So if you didn't catch that, three illustrations of Nineveh, two declarations from the Lord, And one big takeaway from it all. So first, three illustrations of Nineveh. There's three pictures I think that were given. There's some others, but I want to look at three primarily. The first illustration is that Nineveh is like a lion. Lions are royal. Lions are powerful, are they not? And it's amazing now, of course, we didn't have this originally, but as we continue to dig and dig and get more of the uh, historical documents and records from the town of Nineveh, from the city of Nineveh, we're able to, to learn more about how they viewed themselves. And when the Lord addresses them, saying that they are like a, a lion, this is very true. Uh, the kings actually kept records, and they put it this way. Adad Narari said, that in his time, he was a potent lion. He was the king of Nineveh. He was a potent lion. Another king, Sargon II, said, I'm a wild lion who is lordly with frightfulness. And then in the time of Nahum's writing, 
Asar Haddon boasted that he raged like a lion against his enemies. And so, if Nineveh is like this pride, this lion pride of a family, with the lion king who says, I'm fierce. For Nineveh, what what is being going to be communicated through Nahum's prophecy is that there will be no Hakuna Matata. That there, you, you can't go on and on saying, no worries, life is good here because we're so ferocious. He's saying the destruction of Nineveh is coming. It's almost as if God says, oh, oh, you're a lion, are you? Well, we'll see about that. So we look at verse 10 through 12 of chapter 2. Desolate, desolation, and ruin. Hearts melt, knees tremble, and anguishes in all the lions. All the faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion and lioness went? Where his cubs were with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs, strangled prey for his lionesses, and he filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. The picture is the lion had been able to amass much food for his people. He'd been able to storehouse. The cave was stocked full. They tore their enemies to pieces. They took slaves. They exiled the northern kingdom of Israel. And then we read this great threefold phrase, desolate, desolation, and ruin. I mean, you just get the picture. Oh, you were a lion. You were so bad. You stored your caves full of food, but desolate, desolation, and ruin. Anguish is in all the lions. Uh, The picture is bleak. The picture is bleak. First illustration is the lion. Nineveh and its kings, they're, they're like lions. But we see added to this a second illustration. Now I'm looking at that of the prostitute. Now when we hear that the city is being pictured as a prostitute, we might get the idea that the city was sexually promiscuous. And, and that is likely the case, but that's not exactly why the imagery is used here. More likely, it is picking up on the unfaithfulness of the city, how they were using others for what you would get out of the relationship. And so Nineveh makes a peace deal with one city, and then when the time is right, knife in the back and stab you. Oh, peace, peace, everything's fine. Until all of a sudden my army's on your doorstep and we're hauling away all your food and all your treasures and it's all gone. And in the midst of this, what they're doing is they're lying to their neighbors. They lie. Oh, everything's fine. We'll protect you. You protect us. Everything's good. But the context, we see this very clear in chapter 3 where the Lord says, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder and no end to the prey. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, and, and, the, and the galloping horse, and the bounding chariot. The imagery then is of their flashing swords and chariots marching off into battle as they betray nations. And so we see this imagery of the prostitute then show up in verses 4 through 7, where for all the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Do you see that? That's the context. You're betraying nations. By saying all is well, but you're filled with lies. So verse 5, behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make the nations look at your nakedness and the kingdoms at your shame, and I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. 
And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? And the imagery there is, we're looking around for people who are going to be upset, Nineveh, that you've gone down, and we don't see any because you have so lied and plundered and ravaged all around you. Nobody's left to, to care when you fall. And so then, so complete was their unfaithfulness that essentially every nation was impacted by their lies, their false treaties, and turning their back on them. And the Lord says, as a result of this, he will lift their skirt over their head. It's a poetic way of saying that they will be humiliated and shamed. No nation will come to her aid or mourn because every surrounding city, nation, state has been brought to ruin. And so we have three illustrations. One of the lion, now hungry. One of the prostitute, now shamed. And then we see here another one, which is that of Thebes. Thebes and the fig trees. Um, We'll see how these kind of interrelate here. Look at verse 8 through 9 of chapter 3. Where Nahum, through the prophecy from the Lord, says, Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her and a rampart at sea and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. You've not likely heard of the city Thebes. And the reason is, is because Thebes was a blip on the radar of history. It was a flash in the pan. They were really strong. They did really well, but they subsequently collapsed. It's interesting because Thebes had a population that was around 120,000 people. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking 120,000 people. Where have we recently heard about a city that had 120,000 people who didn't know their right hand from their left and which God wanted to extend mercy to? This was the city of Nineveh. And so I think in, in this sense, the Lord is saying, look at Thebes. They thought they were so mighty, 120,000 of them. They thought they were so strong. All the surrounding cities were feeding into them. And then they're, they're done. Don't you see? I can do that with you. The cities that think they are so strong can come straight to ruin. Look at verse 10. Yet she became an exile. She went off into captivity. Her infants were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, were uh, lots were cast, and all of her great men were bound in chains. And if we miss the connection, the Lord will make this abundantly clear, he, clear where he says, you also, meaning you, Nineveh, just like Thebes, who was great and collapsed, you also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies and fire has devoured your bars. And there we get that connection. Um, Just like thieves rose up and then was shaken and devoured, And all of Thebes was plundered. Just like you go up to a fig tree when the figs are really, really ripe. And you shake it and the fruit drops. And then you can eat it up, gobble it up. So too, just like that. This is the way it'll be for the city of Nineveh. And if we can rewind just a moment. I want to remind you last week when we looked at chapter 1 of Nahum. uh, 
we, we were trying to connect some of the dots. And if you didn't catch this, I encourage you to go back and listen so that you too will be able to see how all these things interrelate with the city of, of Nineveh. But in a thumbnail sketch, we saw with the book of Jonah that Nineveh partook in tremendous repentance and they were spared from the coming destruction. But then we saw with the opening of Nahum chapter one, that some 50 years later, they went back to their ways of violence. They went back to the old corruption and a century later at the writing of Nahum, God was now going to act to bring Nineveh to an end. So we end up with three illustrations picturing Nineveh on the other side of their downfall. Each spoken as though it is as good as done. I don't, I don't know if you caught that. Much of this was written in that past tense sort of language. It's almost as if here's the picture of it all when it's already done, said and done with it. It's already as good as done. The Lord will keep his promises. It's over for you, Nineveh. And it is for this reason we move then from the three illustrations to two clear declarations from the Lord. Two declarations from the Lord. The first, the first tackles the question, is it possible, suppose with me, is it possible to remain as an enemy of the Lord in rebellion forever and get away with it? Look at verse 13 of chapter 2. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers will no longer be heard. This declaration from the Lord, this first declaration, comes directly after the illustration of the lions, and it helps us to see that the nation tore everyone apart. Everybody around them, they tore apart, but now they themselves will be torn apart, and remembering that the Lord's timetables, they're not like yours and mine. Uh, we want just retribution today. Uh, you punch me, two seconds later, I punch you. And this is not how it works with the Lord. Vengeance and justice come in his timetables, in his way. We must remember that he is patient and he will act justly and righteous in his judgments. The Lord's vengeance... And righteous judgments, when they come, they will be irresistible and they will be final. And we see this pictured for the town. Uh, the, The painted picture for us is there's coming a day for all those who oppose the Lord, all who walk and remain in sinful rebellion. And in the midst of a book that has shown us as chapter one did, the Lord is slow to anger and in great power. That's what we saw in chapter one. The Lord is slow to anger. There is a patience of the Lord that we cannot miss. He's patiently at work. And at the same time, in the same moment, we must recognize the same verse that reads, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Also says, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Nahum chapters two and three are working that out. The declaration is final. There doesn't seem to be a second chance here and there doesn't seem to be a way of escape There is no way Nineveh will be able to resist this coming doom. And I think the implications of this are crucial for my friends here who do not yet know Nahum's God, who do not yet walk with our God, with Jesus Christ here this morning. I I, I wonder this morning if perhaps you're a bit like Nineveh and you assess your standing with God based off of your success. Do, do you and I assess our standing 
based off of how well things are going. Is God pleased with you because you are financially well off? Or if you have subtly believed that because earthly judgment hasn't come upon you, that the Lord is overlooking your lies or your wickedness or your cruelty to others. Again, financial status. How much people like you. Your luxurious life. These are all poor indicators of how God actually views you. No, what, we, what should become clear to us here is that God is a God who keeps his word. And even if there's long delay, God will keep his promises to judge those who live in rebellion against him. And God will keep his promises to care for his people who by faith are his own. And so if this morning, as I'm talking about the reality of judgment, if this lays heavy upon your heart here this morning, you need to hear the second declaration, the clear declaration from the Lord that he's making. Nahum says, that it's found uh, back in chapter 2, where Nahum says in, cha- in verses 1 and 2, he says, The scatterer has come up, up against you, man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect your strength. For all the Lord, for, sorry, for the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel, for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. Now, first what we get in verse 1 is are these sarcastic taunts. The Lord is essentially saying, okay, go ahead, uh, build up your army. Clean up your AR-15s, sharpen your knives, get your uh, tanks nice and, and, and polished up and fixed up and ready to go. Go ahead and do it. And by the way, none of this will matter because you're going to come to ruin. And then we see after these sarcastic taunts, God is reasoning that the reasoning that he gives Nineveh for building up their strength is because God is in the middle of doing a work of restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. And it's on that point, I think there's a little bit of confusion. Uh, What exactly is meant here by the majesty of Jacob, even as Israel? The Christian Standard Bible puts it, I think, a bit clearer for us where it says, for the Lord will restore the majesty of Jacob. Yes, the majesty of Israel though ravagers have ravaged them and ruined their vine branches. Now, both the north and southern kingdoms, they would one day be reunited. The, the, the prophets, uh, both major and minor, speak towards this coming day when Jesus, or sorry, when Jews would be a unified one again, one nation, and would be God's people. After Ezekiel in chapter 36, where it discusses the new covenant, we find Ezekiel chapter 37, which bring, brings the, 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 where we see the bringing of the, uh, of the dead back to life. We see these bones scattered everywhere and, and he calls out to, uh, to the bones to rise and they all rise up this army. And then directly after that, very odd, God calls Ezekiel to do something interesting. He's to take one stick and he's to write the southern kingdom on this stick. And he's to take another stick and he's to write the northern kingdom. And then he's to take the two sticks and to put them together like this. And what's the image? The image is what was broken in in half and separated through the civil war is now going to be brought together as one. And, 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 And then we find the gathering from all the nations to bring them back to their own land as one nation in the land. But more is going on. More is going on there in 37. As we read there, it says, and one king, listen, one king shall be over them all. 
And they shall no longer be two nations, no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all backslidings in which they have sinned and I will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Friends, for God to do all that he is saying right there, for God to do all of this would take a fulfillment of a strong agreement. For God to do this, it would take an oath. For God to do what he just said in regards to bringing his people together, his people of faith, it would take a covenant, a new covenant, which is exactly what 36 and 37 of the book of Ezekiel are all about. We've seen three pictures painting the picture of Nineveh and its downfall. Nineveh will be plundered, it will be in want, and it will be ruined. And if you missed the point, then in two declarations, clear declarations from the Lord, we heard that God is against Nineveh, and he is for his people. He will be faithful to his promises. And now to bring it full circle, we face one big takeaway from it all. Friends, what is true for God's people in Nahum's day is still true for his people today. Not only... May God use global powers to remind us that he's in control, but he may bring those same global powers to an utter ruin in his due time, in his forbearing patience, when he decides the moment is right. So that you and I, we may look at each dictator, we may see the terrorists, the terrorist organization, each monster in turn, and we note how they did have their day. They did have their day. Surely as the sun rises, so another monster rises to power. Everyone from Nero and Domitian in the first century to some in more recent times. We think of Mao Zedong, 40 million killed off in starvation. We think of of, uh, Stalin, Mussolini. Other names you and I might be more familiar with. We think of Hitler with the 6 million Jews. We think of Saddam Hussein, Osama bin Laden, terrorist groups such as Taliban, ISIS, Hamas, and more. And there will be more to come that we don't even know of right now. And the big takeaway for us as Christians is that one day it's all going to come crashing down. Judgment will come just as Nineveh came to ruins so, so badly that we couldn't even locate them for centuries. So too wicked men and their deeds will come to ruins. So what is it that you and I are supposed to do then as Christians? I think Nahum chapters 2 and 3 call us in this big idea of it all to rejoice for the kingdoms and powers of this world will come to an end. Did you say, Thomas, rejoice? Are we supposed to rejoice at the destruction and judgment of people and nations? I didn't say this. The book of Nahum says it. Look at the very last verse. Chapter 3, verse 19. There is no easing your hurt. This is the Lord speaking to Nineveh still. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. It's as if Nahum says, Nineveh, everyone who hears about your downfall and your destruction, they're going to clap their hands. They're going to rejoice that you, because you have afflicted everyone. And now your works of evil have come to an end. And this is the pattern that we see through history. It's repeated again and again. This pattern when awful dictators come to rise and then eventually fall and come to ruin. 
This is what we see now. How many of you recall Saddam Hussein when they found him in that hole hiding out in a farm and how the media and many of the conversations, I mean, through our talking, it was essentially us rejoicing and, and being um, thankful and grateful. The news and the media, everybody clapped their hands. Now, as Christians, we don't take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but we do give thanks when monstrous men are no longer able to torture our fellow Christians or mankind. Reading our Bibles with the end in mind, we remind ourselves now, even this morning, the lion from the tribe of Judah will fiercely and ferociously protect all his cubs. Spiritually, the shepherd will tend and protect his sheep. So we rejoice for the kingdoms and powers of this world will come to an end. And oftentimes when you and I, we think about the gospel, one of the things that we may miss is the consummation of all things. The resolution of the tension that we live under right now. What, what I'm speaking about is when you think of the gospel, it has an end point, a driving point for us. Not only does the gospel center on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, but it actually is an arrow pointing to the people of God extending beyond our mission at the moment, which is important, but it culminates with a final judgment. It culminates with the final blossoming and rejuvenation of God's people under his leadership as one nation in one people. As Christians, we remain humble knowing that Christ brought us into this kingdom, not by violently plundering others around us, not by bringing the death of others, but by himself being plundered on our behalf, by his death, by his stripes, we are healed. This is how we enter the kingdom now, by grace, through faith, in Christ, according to the scriptures, all for God's glory. And this kingdom that we are in right now, this very moment, I hope you understand, church, when you flip on the news, the kingdom that we are partaking in this morning, it's unshakable. You can shake this fig tree all you want, and the figs are not coming down. Uh, Christ made this clear. Inasmuch as you and I this morning, as we will take communion in a moment, and we declare that Jesus Christ is Lord and he is the Son of God, so too Christ declares, upon this, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to overcome us. They will not be able to shake this fig tree and we will slowly like a mustard tree grow and grow and grow. I don't know about you, but sometimes I like to f- search online and figure out the very end to a movie. So you're watching a movie and you're going, okay, I'm, I, I don't want to waste my time. I need to figure out where this is going before I invest more time. And so you, you might skip to the end. And as we do this, there's a reason that you and I can rejoice when a city like Nineveh repents and receives mercy from God, as we saw in Jonah. And there's a reason why you and I can rejoice and clap our hands when a city like Nineveh returns to its wicked ways and fails to repent and is judged for it. Because you and I know how the story ends. We cheat. We go to the end of the book. In the final chapters of the Bible, we have pictured Satan and his minions attempting to shake that tree, unable to do so. Because God comes to consume them in fire. It's where we read Jesus' words. He says, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. 
To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And the one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, and as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, all their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So as Christians, as we consider where we are at in this moment and where we will continue to be until Christ's return, I I, I encourage you to be like Paul, where Paul says, I'm sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. I'm sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. I believe that's the healthy Christian response when we flip on the news. We're sorrowful because we see the effects of sin. We see our fellow brothers and sisters being martyred. We see our fellow mankind suffering under dictatorship. But we also rejoice because we know one day it will all come to a great and glorious end. Would you pray with me? Father, won't what, what can we respond to the judgment and the subsequent grace that is given to us except to say thank you, to give praise and thanks for your grace that you've given us in Christ. Father, we pray that you would sustain us in the years and decades to come. Lord, let us not be prideful in our position knowing that next year or next decade may bring something different. But would you, by your spirit, give us a a position of humility. Help us, too, to be sorrowful at the right things and to rejoice in the right things, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.